Hi, welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show podcast. Coming up, Hamilton gets its LRT. Will Canada lose line five? And why is the Prime Minister ignoring the work of Providence Therapeutics on a Canadian solution to a vaccine? It's all coming up. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. The Prime Minister is singing, it will be a one-dose summer and a two-dose fall. Hey, can I request a happy song? It's the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here's Scott Thompson. There you go. Good afternoon. It is... 12.35, it's 900 CHML, I'm Scott Thompson, Willers can back at the station, keeping the Scott Thompson home show between the pipes. Feel free to jump into the conversation, we would love to hear from you. And those are the sound, that's the sound of champagne corks uh, popping at, at City Hall. You can imagine, man, if there wasn't a pandemic going on, I'm sure the party would have spilled out into the street. Uh, after this announcement was made uh, yesterday. And in case you didn't hear it, uh, the Prime Minister yesterday during his morning news conference uh, unveiled two major uh, major transportation, no, two, four major uh, transportation uh, projects in Toronto, four major transit uh, routes in Toronto, and then, of course, uh, LRT here in Hamilton. Although he didn't say LRT, he said rapid transit and did specify from McMaster to uh, to Eastgate Square, of course, that is the original extended route, not the shortened version of it. So great news there, all around. Uh, details coming out tomorrow on uh, you know the crossing of the T's, the dotting of the I's, or however much information we can get uh, moving forward. But in the meantime, let's bring in Philomena Tassi, Minister of Labor, MP for Hamilton Ancaster Dundas, and is with us now. Philomena, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. Doing well, Scott. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Yeah, this is a uh, phenomenal announcement, not only for uh, other, uh, you know, all of Southern Ontario, but certainly for for Hamilton. And as you can imagine, uh, as soon as it was announced you were going to be on the show, the questions started pouring in uh, from our uh, news department. So I'll start from the beginning uh, with this process and the application from Ontario for funds from investing in Canada infrastructure program, uh, the transit program, and how that was received by the federal government and the subsequent decision to help develop a major Hamilton transit project. How did this come apart, uh, come about? Well, you know, the government, our government, the federal government has been clear that we want to make investments in transit. Uh, Minister McKenna is, as you know, a champion for Hamilton. She's very aware of the growth, the potential, uh, the great things that are taking place in Hamilton. And so she ultimately was able to put this, uh, this package together where the, it became the GTHA projects and, uh, was able to get this, uh, this one across the finish line. It's amazing. Uh, obviously, you know the history of this project in the city. Uh, I think everybody's just stunned to see uh, different levels of government working on this and, and what has been accomplished here. Uh, any comments on city council and their involvement or lack thereof in this process at this point? I mean, obviously, at the, uh, you know, very much so in the beginning, but as far as this announcement. So, Scott, what I would say there is I think that we have come to a position now where we are positioned with a shovel-ready project, and we have to give credit to all those that were involved along the way, which has been years, in order to get to where we are now. 
So city council has done a lot of work. And Mayor Eisenberger, of course, is a, is a big supporter of this project. Mm. But it's also stakeholders like, you know, the chamber, Leuna, so many uh, people and uh, organizations that are supportive of this project have brought us where we are today. And it is a shovel-ready project. And that is really, really important. That is what enabled the federal government to come in and say, we are going to support this project. Um, and so I'm, I'm grateful to so many that have worked so hard to get us to this point. Uh, obviously, yesterday, the prime minister even announced uh, that it will go from McMaster to Eastgate Square. What else are we going to know from this announcement tomorrow? What more can we expect from from tomorrow? Any hints? So, well, one thing I will make clear today, because I think that there is some question, is this is an LRT that was my next question, because, again, yes. that wasn't spelled yes. out. So you can clarify that. Right. right. I can absolutely say this is, a, this is LRT. And the reason is it's the LRT that's shovel-ready. And that goes back to the statement of, you know, how many people have worked together in order to get to the place that we are. So we know that through this pandemic, so many jobs have been lost. It's been so hard. This is about job creation. And so we know that if we can get shovels in the ground, there's going to be so many jobs that are created and and so that's a part of us moving forward with this at this really important time job creation post pandemic really really important we want to make these investments we want canadians back to work and creating the jobs that allow them to 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 do that so this is it's it's absolutely clear that this will be lrt um the other thing i think that uh, is to be made clear and i know minister mckenna made it with the previous uh gta investments is that there will be uh, conditions with respect to community ben- uh, benefits, environmental issues, uh, community engagement, accessibility, and barrier-free design. So these things will be a part of it. The details you can expect tomorrow are those perhaps in a little bit more detail and actually the amount that will be, um, that will be provided by both the federal and provincial government. So will you be laying out uh, the contribution from the federal government? Uh, is this 100% capital funding from both levels, provincial and federal? So, so I'm going to leave that till tomorrow. I don't want to spoil anything. Mm-hmm. I think um, what I would say is that this is significant uh, support by provincial and federal government and uh, that, you know, we're happy that the federal government was able to come to the table to push this across the finish line because I think... Without our support, this would not be happening today. So really happy about that. And I think that that's what, that's what you know, Hamiltonians want. That's what Canadians want. They want all levels of government working together to deliver for communities, for, uh, for cities, and for the country. Obviously, this was always an issue with the city on, on how much it would cost them or what the, the uh, underlying costs would be. Uh, safe to say tomorrow we'll find out that they will take on operating and maintenance costs as per, as per the, the, the latest discussions there's been on this. Is that changing in any way? What I would say is, again, the details, I, I don't want to be the spoiler mm-hmm. of that. I, I want people to tune in. I want everybody to be listening. I want everybody across this city to be, uh, to be uh, looking forward to tomorrow's great announcement. Um, but to say, look, at this is a generational opportunity. This is an opportunity that maybe even once in a lifetime in terms of mm. the invest- investments that are being made by the provincial and federal governments coming together. And, you know, in terms of what it's going to do for Hamilton with respect to job creation, with respect to the start of the project, and, of course, the creation of the LRT, but also with respect to seniors, workers, 
students. This is going to be absolutely amazing. We're going to be able to transport uh, families and individuals in an easy, cheap, efficient way that's environmentally conscious. It's a fantastic win for this community, and it is a great day for celebration for Hamilton. That's for sure. Uh, how does how did the pandemic change this this course of action? Did it help it? Did it speed it up? Uh, how how did you know coming out of a pandemic, or hopefully we will by the time this gets started? Uh, how does the pandemic change all of this, or, or create opportunity? Yeah, you know, Scott, I think that's an excellent question because we're all struggling with the pandemic, and and I know that many people it's, we're at wit's end, right? People are fed up, they're tired. And so investments by the, by the federal government have been really geared towards providing supports that are needed now. Um, a part of that is job creation. So this is a part of it. And that's what the criteria, the really important criteria about shovel ready. None of the projects that were announced with respect to the $12 billion package are anything but shovel ready projects. But it's, it's, you know, it's providing jobs that are going to be created immediately. Another area where I think Hamilton has also benefited is the rapid housing announcement. So the rapid housing initiative, the, uh, the city put in applications. And that was, again, to um, provide housing that would be built within a year's time. So, you know, the federal government committed to over $10 million in that regard. So in answer to your question, yes, there are investments that have been expedited because of the pandemic. It doesn't mean that the investments would not be made in the in, in the uh, in the you know at the end of the day because the federal government has committed 180 billion dollars in infrastructure investments, um, but definitely picking up the pace on these investments so that we can get people back to work, so that we can create those jobs. We know that people want to work; they have to have the opportunity, and that's exactly what these investments are going to provide. Uh, any idea on a timeline when the federal government would like to see this completed, when they want to start it? Well, I mean, we want to be reasonable and we want to work with, with um, you know, with the city. And, of course, the city is going to be working with uh, um, uh, uh, companies across the, this in this area. The community benefits is a part of it. I know that, um, you know, stakeholders like uh, Leuna and Joe Mancinelli are, are eager to get their workers working on this. So, um, the good news is that a lot of the work with respect to the, the, the uh, preparation work has been done, but I think details on exact timing will be, uh, will be outlined probably by the city tomorrow. And uh, again, I'm asking you questions that you may not be able to answer at this point and are holding off for tomorrow, but uh, any idea of a consensus on, on building the project, the typical bid, bidding process uh, going on here? No, that again, yeah, those details, I think, and, and um, um, you know, the mayor will probably be in a better position to, to answer those questions directly. But I, I think that it's, it's back to the, the, the reality that this is going to create jobs locally. This is going to put uh, probably thousands of Canadians to work, and, and the local community is going to benefit by that because there are um, conditions in the agreement that ensure that there are local community benefits with respect to employment. Uh, I, I, I certainly have been very supportive of this project since uh, since it all started. Uh, but I remember very vividly for me, uh, one of the selling points was that it was going to connect directly to the GO station. There was going to be uh, a spur line going down James Street. Uh, obviously, that's not in this plan. It's strictly uh, an, an east-west route. Any, any chatter, anything as far as actually 
you know, connectivity to the go station to really make this, you know, a network that you can, you can seamlessly go from one stage to another. So, Scott, you got me working on my next job already, and we haven't <laughs> yet. Listen, I know that there's plans, and I think it's a very important question because, and when you talk to Mayor Fred, you know, he will confirm this. There are plans in order to uh, have further connectivity. I think that once we get this built um, and then making those connections, whether it's from the mountain to the gold station to the airport, I actually would advocate for Dundas, um, but I will declare that I'm a Dundas resident, so there is a little bit of uh, uh, perhaps conflict there. But I think of, for example, the seniors that are that are living in Dundas that I think would love to be able to hop on and uh, the LRT and go all the way to Eastgate, you know. So, listen, this is the start, and uh, our government, I want to say, believes in these types of projects. We're going to be there to continue to invest in these projects because we know the benefits that uh, that they create. And so for Hamiltonians, this is just so exciting and great news, um, uh, one to be celebrated. But uh, and, and maybe we will have subsequent celebrations as those additional lines are, are added. Uh, talk a little bit about uh, how this is affecting uh, Toronto and the four lines that they are having uh, extended there. Uh, the Premier's been pushing for this for quite a long time. Yes. So I think, you know, it's the overall commitment of our government. And so, you know, we have said that we work with local communities and determine what are the priorities in the local communities. And so, you know, this is a part of recognizing that different communities have different requests. I know that the GTA is really happy with these lines, that they're extremely uh, grateful that these investments, that we are able to come together to partner to make these investments. So it's, you know, it's, it's twofold. It's about listening to what local governments are saying and where the investments, uh, that they want and, uh, and, and supporting that, but also the federal government's commitment to ensuring that significant investments are made in infrastructure. And so, you know, the city council has in, in the past supported this one. And it was great that we were, Minister McKenna was able to bring these projects together and Hamilton actually gets to be included in this. And I think a part of that is just, you know, again, recognizing this ambitious city, recognizing the amazing things that are taking place in this city, the growth, whether that's in health research and development, advanced manufacturing, metals engineering technology, arts and culture. Like, Scott, we're on fire in Hamilton. And mm. so, you know, we need to continue to make investments that are going to help the growth of this ambitious city. And uh, these dollars are so well spent. All right, last question here. Uh, this project moving forward, then stopped, and now moving forward again. Uh, anything uh, lost due to that time? Any extra cost because of that last time? Uh, that lost time here. Well, I don't have the, the. I don't have a comparison in terms of you know um, uh, financials that were put together at the beginning of this conversation, and now I'm sure there's some adjustment. I think at the end of the day. Uh, what I would focus on, because I like being optimistic and uh, positive thinking, is so much work has gone into this by so many people, including, you know, as I've said, city council, uh, stakeholders, uh, whether that's Leuna, the chamber, Keenan Loomis at the chamber has been a strong advocate. I know that McMaster is really happy because now, you know, students, professors can can get get to school, to get to classes, to get to 
um, uh, you know, visits with, uh, with other students so that they can work on projects together. All this is, is really uh, a, um, a culmination. So it's really come together in a nice way. And I recognize that there has been a multitude of views on this, and that's okay. At the end of the day, we are at a place where I think we all recognize this is a fantastic opportunity for Hamilton. This is significant funding that is, is really unprecedented that you will hear about tomorrow. And uh, I'm just so happy for this, for this city. I, I love my, my ambitious city, born, raised, and lived here all my life. And I, I just couldn't be happier about this announcement. So anything to say to those Hamiltonians that still aren't convinced about this project now that it appears that it's moving forward finally? Yeah, I think, Scott, you know, that's a very good question because, I listen, I respect everyone has different views. And I think that, um, well, I know that there are some that uh, do not, you know, have concerns. But I would say um, that the overwhelming support is we, we need to see this move forward. So I, I say the support across the city is there for that. And then the second thing I would say is, listen, keep an open mind. I've heard of people, and I look at the Kitchener-Waterloo example where, you know, it, at the beginning, they were uh, maybe not on board. Sorry for the pun. but And at the end of the day, when it's built and they see it functioning and they see all the value of it, I know that you had Mayor Fred on and he was acknowledging some of the, the things, uh, the benefits, that then they, they, you know, they said, you know what, this is good. So keep an open mind. Um, we appreciate the dialogue. We respect the dialogue. But that can't take away from this amazing opportunity for the city of Hamilton. And I'm just so proud to be a part of a government that's making it happen. Philomena Tassi with us, Minister of Labor, MP for Hamilton, Ancaster and Dundas, talking about the major transit projects in the greater Toronto-Hamilton area, including foreign Toronto and, of course, Hamilton getting its LRT uh, finally. Philomena, great news. Uh, congratulations on this great announcement. I think this is what Ontario needs, uh, what Canada needs. We need to build more stuff. Uh, moving forward, I remember being uh, a young kid and riding on the Toronto subway line in the late 60s, early 70s when it was first built. And it seems that, you know, although there's been some minor projects, we've kind of come to a stall since then. So it's great to see that finally these major projects are uh, are, are going forward. And I guess with a pandemic, uh, it's a perfect time. Uh, thanks so much for the time, Philomena. Much appreciated. Good luck with this. My pleasure. Thank you, Scott. Philomena Tassi, Minister of Labor, MP for Hamilton, Ancaster, and Dundas. Uh, great news. Some major, major infrastructure projects announced for the greater Toronto-Hamilton area. And uh, it is about time. Enough of the guests. Now it's time for my opinion. Here's the commentary. Federal NDP leader Jagmeet Singh is focusing on right-wing extremists he says are behind the anti-masking, anti-lockdown conspiracies. To brazenly not follow public health guidelines puts people at risk, and that is something that we've seen with extreme right-wing ideology, said the NDP leader. Well, I guess that must be right, because it is coming from the leader of the extreme left. Have you ever noticed the people who complain the most about the extreme right are the extreme left, and vice versa? Most who are complaining about the extreme left are on the extreme right. Do you see a pattern here? Yes, they are both extremes and do not represent the majority of Canadians in the center. 
So why are we paying attention to either extreme, on the left or right? Because divisive politics wins today. Unfortunately, we saw that with U.S. President Donald Trump. And extremists are trying to create the same divisive chaos here. The solution is in the middle, where most Canadians reside. Not either extreme. I'm Scott Thompson. I find this whole Line 5 debate absolutely hilarious because nobody in uh, Eastern Canada has any idea about this issue, and yet we've had friends from the West in our affiliates that are saying, are you guys aware that you're going to shut your oil down in May? Like, do you even care about that? No, I didn't even know what was going on, to be totally honest. Uh, And here we are on the day that they're actually supposed to shut the dang thing down. uh, Now we're hearing about it. From our feds. Anyway, uh, here's what was going on in the House of Commons question period today over the big line five or yesterday. I'm sorry. Over the big line five pipeline debate. Mr. Speaker, tomorrow, the governor of Michigan wants to shut down the line five pipeline that is critical to the Canadian economy. After many months of inaction this morning, mere hours before the deadline, the liberal government filed an objection with the court. Is this last-minute legal action an admission that this Prime Minister's outreach to President Biden has failed? Right, Honourable Prime Minister. Mr. Speaker, Line 5 is a critical piece of infrastructure both for Canada and the United States. It's vital for energy workers and families on both sides of the border. Today, the Government of Canada filed a submission in U.S. court in support of the continued safe operation of Line 5 and in support of continued mediation between Michigan and the company. As we have for many months, Ambassador Hillman and government officials will continue to engage with our counterparts on this important issue. Another uh, breathy rebuttal from our Prime Minister that has been prepared for him. You know what I think? Shut the damn thing down. Shut it down today. Shut it down right now. And then let's have this discussion in a week and see where we are. Boy, will this conversation pivot, as they say during a pandemic. Uh, let's bring, the, bring in Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and is with us now. Dan, thanks for the, the uh, time. Hope you're doing well. <laughs> I'm doing fine, and uh, a big smirk on my face. I don't think I'm far from your conclusion, Scott. Uh, just shut it down. I mean, I've warned people about this for three years. They don't want to listen. Then uh, perhaps they'll listen when they go to their favorite gas station, uh, find out there's no fuel, uh, try to uh, get their favorite item from the grocery store and find out it hasn't been delivered, uh, turn on the barbecue and there's no propane. And, uh, yeah, their job over at uh, the warehouse's manufacturers not existing because, of course, no propane means no forklifts, means no tow motors, uh, and of course, on and on and on. So, 50% hit to the uh, to the uh, fuel supply of all of Ontario. 66% to the province of Quebec. You know the guys who like to block pipelines uh, because they don't have social license. Uh, all this could be very real in a very quick, dramatic way. So, uh, yay to Governor Gretch, uh, Gretchen Whitmer. <laughs> you know, uh, and and I know this isn't kudos you want to take, but Dan, you have been preaching this for years, for months on this show and other shows that would listen that this was going to happen. And it just sounds like, and as I've said to you before, you know, we'd have uh, simulcast shows with the West with uh, uh, Daniel Steele at our at our uh, sorry, Daniel Smith. Daniel Steele's the author. Daniel right, right. Smith out. 
uh, West. <laughs> great and, and, and she would and she would say, like, are you guys not aware of this? Are you not? And, you know, this was months ago and it wasn't even a story then. Are you not just completely surprised at how all of a sudden we have Seamus O'Regan, you know, meekly coming out and saying we need this? And even the prime minister. I mean, these people are speaking out of two sides of their mouth. Oh, they really are. And I was on the industry committee last week. I'd served there for many years as vice chair. Stunned that the uh, liberals uh, were pushing the Great Reset at a time when we're dealing with a, a, a true existential crisis to our economy. So U.S. Uh, Canadian um, oil producers understand this, but Canadian consumers do not. And that's because nothing's happened. No price implications, nothing. And of course, uh, last week, my tweet about saying line five is to eastern Canada economically what the colonial pipeline is to eastern united states so that was a week ago so 10 days ago i put that tweet out um i did, had nothing to do with the, the hacking by the way scott so don't uh, don't think i'm part of that dark no you, unless you're russian i think it was the russians that's the <laughs> that's the rumor but you know you bring up you bring up a very valid point because the colonial pipeline went down we are seeing shortages yep. in the united states at exactly the same time that this is all coming to a head and you know uh, you know it would be a painful painful lesson dan but honestly if they shut the damn thing down for a week we would see we would get a giant blast of reality on on how uh fragile our infrastructure is and how much we need uh a pipeline or or any sort of resources going from east to west west to east it would uh, bring back reality to the narrative to the to discussion to the conversation i hate that word that we have in canada about what our priorities really are we have failed to prioritize at a time in which we're dealing with a real crisis a health crisis not an environmental one not uh, one clear created by climate and that's not to disparage those who believe in that but it is really low in the totem pole when it comes to priorities and i think our priorities have to be you have a uh, literally uh, a death uh, warning a death sentence that has been pronounced on our most important uh, aortic artery pipeline uh, in here in Canada. And, uh, you know, up until today and yesterday, there, you know, yourself as an exception, there have been very few who've talked about this imminent threat. And, uh, you know, it now hangs on... Now today it's all we're talking about. Now today it's all we're talking about. It's bizarre. It's bizarre because we know it's going to happen. So uh, I finished uh, with your colleague, uh, Sean O'Shea, uh, a piece for tonight's uh, National. And I, I mentioned very clearly that this would mean 75% of all gas stations would have to close. It means that the existing supply of fuel would have to be repurposed for emergency management. It means that uh, everything that we normally take for granted, the time in which uh, supply chains are hard-pressed, I mean, and we're barely managing to keep things going. You would suddenly be dealt what is what I think would be a death blow to the Canadian economy for both producers, consumers, manufacturers. So anybody who thinks that you can whistle past a, a pipeline and, and oppose it, or you know, suddenly snap your fingers and ha- you know, suddenly a new pipeline appears, or think that you can rail the stuff or truck this stuff from Alberta for God's sakes. Anybody who thinks that is delusional, and it's time really to really get real about our priorities, as I mentioned earlier. Scott, I hope that what we're seeing in terms of the Colonial Pipeline, which is it should be resolved by Friday, is a, a, an apt, very telling, 
and very fortuitous reminder to Canadians not to damn well take your fossil fuel hydrocarbon industry for granted because the alternative is something none of us want and it's nothing something that none of us can recover from economically and socially. Are you surprised that government didn't have a plan for this other than coming out with uh, with the, the people they have in the last 48 hours? I mean, it's pretty obvious this is the last thing the Liberals want to sell because it goes completely against everything they're preaching uh, with, with climate change and, and not building roads and not wanting... Uh, any more fossil fuel production at all is if we can just flip a switch tomorrow and all start flying kites and driving electric vehicles uh, and such. Um, this goes against, ev- like standing up and defending this pipeline goes against everything they say, even more so than purchasing uh, the Trans Mountain Pipeline. So how do they sell this to the public who they've convinced for years that we don't need a line five now all of a sudden we do yeah well i mean reality bites doesn't it um you have a circumstance here where everything else is secondary and you can wish away all that you want but it's a little bit like saying let's just get rid of oxygen and we can find an alternative we know that the alternative doesn't exist we know that without it we're dead our act, our economy, the lifeblood of our economy is pipelines and what's in those pipelines, whether that be natural gas pipelines or oil. But here, here's a solution. Since the Liberals ignored me for three years, even though I had been given instructions directly as to the threat from top officials from the U.S. Emergency Management Preparedness, and FEMA, NEMA, and NASEO, and I, I won't get into the details of that as to how I was connected with that because of my old job at GasBuddy and the uh, the outage tracker that we use, we're using today, and has been deployed in those areas where the shortages of fuel. Let me be really clear to any liberal member of parliament that might be listening. Folks, it's time to think about Energy East again. That'll be the pipeline you help destroy. Uh, let's put aside the past and let's get that, uh, let's go to TransCanada, TC Energy, and ask them very bluntly uh, any chance you can convert that from the natural gas conduit all within the Canadian territory, already built. Can we start the project now and get that running? Because that, to me, would be a convenient alternative. Sooner or later, you're going to get a judge and you're going to get a politician that are going to agree on shutting down Line 5. When that happens, the fur will fly in Canada. So, look, Liberal friends, colleagues, if you still have any semblance of pragmatism as you had in the past, maybe it's time to think about uh, using that uh, double-lettered word, Energy East. Let's get it going because right now, Ontarians and our responsible government would respond by saying, this was a shot across our bow. We, the next one, we won't be so lucky. And any day now, we could see this thing close. So while we have time, let's get this thing built. Uh, and this should be a priority. It should be an election issue. If the Prime Minister wants to call an election in the midst of a pandemic, let's make sure energy reliability, energy affordability is right, front and centre. Where is Quebec on all of this? Because we all know they are the biggest, uh, uh, they are the biggest opponent of a east-west pipeline of any way. I mean, but this greatly affects them. And we certainly remember what happened when the propane stopped flowing, uh, a couple of winters ago. So has this changed their opinion on, on their attitudes? Well, maybe it should and will if we have the line closed. But let me really be blunt about this. We lose 50% of the supply of our, of our, oil uh, to run our economy. Quebec loses 66%. Oh, by the way, don't take my word for it. Read the amicus brief that the Liberals reluctantly put together to the state of Michigan, to the court in the state of Michigan yesterday. 
declaring why it, you know it's impossible they cannot proceed and give a whole pile of legal reasons for it. In one of the comments there, they reaffirmed what I have been saying before. Quebec has more to lose than Ontario. We're all going to lose. But for them, uh, the higher you are, the more you use, the harder you're going to fall. And so for a province that uses and has more F-150s per capita than any other province in Canada, including Alberta, I would probably make a very strong argument to me, Benzenu, Quebec, uh, uh, that uh, maybe it's time you get off your high horses on this nonsense about uh, uh, the green reset and uh, uh, carbon uh, emissions and start realizing that uh, you have far more to lose than the rest of the country does, even though we're all going to lose together. Again, it seems to be one extreme or the other. Is this a rude awakening? Is is this a blast reality? Or will there somehow be some sort of patchwork solution here? Uh, and, you know, we'll all go on our daily uh, routine and no one cares. It's like a, a vision we received in a dream. And if we don't heed that vision, that, uh, that warning, uh, we're going to pay for it. Uh, we have a chance to avert this. Um, nothing's happened yet. Uh, prices are at a dollar thirty, going to a dollar thirty-one, dollar thirty-two. By the way, on on uh, Friday, um, but if we don't, uh, it won't just be the price we're concerned about. It's going to be the ability for us to make ends meet and to, uh, to conduct business as we normally do. I, I think we should heed what has happened. You can have spent some time ignoring those of us who've been warning this was going to happen since 2018, at least knowing that the plan had been in place in Michigan since 2012. Now you have a president of the United States that won't return the phone calls of the prime minister on this issue. Now you have a governor who has a very strong position within the Democratic Party. And you have green uh, advocates in the United States who are not really taking into account the massive trade relationship the two jurisdictions of Ontario and Michigan have, arguably one of the biggest in the world, uh, subnational uh, sovereign jurisdictions as far as trade is, is concerned. All that is very clearly now at risk because I can tell you, uh, I, I can't speak for the Trudeau government, but I can certainly understand that uh, I think the Ford government would actually find some spine to respond in kind and shut down all of the free energy we're selling to, uh, to Michigan, among other things. So this could lead to a, uh, you know, a trade war, the likes of which we have not seen since uh, the Smoot-Hawley Act of 1930 uh, in the United States, uh, 1928 in the United States. Environment. Environmentalists will say this should have all started earlier. If we had uh, heeded the call and started preparing, uh, we'd be driving around in electric vehicles right now and heating our homes with solar. You'd be sitting around in the state of nature eating acorns, wearing animal skins, if it was up to them. Look, they realize that uh, if this happens, uh, their whole narrative goes out the window. There isn't a single person out there who won't take uh, you know, uh, their old dirty socks and shove it down their throats uh, because they've had enough of this nonsense. Uh, we have been a very clean country. If you look at the Great Lakes, look at Lake Ontario compared to 20 or 30 years ago. Yeah, you can yeah. fish there. It's clean. Uh, the air is yep. cleaner. We have achieved a hell of a lot. And we've done so progressively and in step with reality and with the, in step with the bounds of uh, the laws of physics. But if people want to be trendy and cute, I suggest that they will have absolutely no constituency left in Canada when this, uh, when this, uh, this kind of thing happens. Because if you hurt Canadians... They uh, they may be slow at learning, but they sure as hell will fight back. And uh, I can tell you there won't be a green standing when it all is said and done. Uh, as of today, where does this stand right now? Obviously, the pipeline is still open. Today was the deadline. Uh, what happens next? What's, what's, what's on the timeline here? We're now really, um, our, our fate and our lot uh, will be decided by U.S. judges. So uh, while there is negotiation between Enbridge and uh, Michigan, and while 
my good old friend Joe Comartin, who's been our consul general in Detroit, may be trying to you know continue to leave the hailing frequencies open uh, with uh, Gretchen Whitmer. Um, the reality is that this is now going to come down to a court decision. I want Canada to win. We all want the right thing to be done and leave well enough, bloody well alone. But I have to be realistic. Uh, no one knows how this is going to turn out. And justices may find that, in fact, Michigan has grounds. Uh, and there may be issues of liability. There may be issues of seizure of property and assets that Michigan may proceed, be, be prepared to proceed with. I don't know how this is going to go, but imagine that years of infrastructure that have been a vanguard that saved and protected our standard of living here in, in Canada and have, you know, uh, you know, had a pretty good track record when it came to that particular piece of the pipeline across the Straits of Mackinac. Imagine that it now comes down to a handful of people who are going to make a decision, the likes of which uh, could imperil Canada permanently. So, look, uh, I don't know how it's going to turn out. It's up to a court in the United States, but I can tell you that now is the time, if there ever was a time, as I mentioned earlier, Energy East, my friends, is only one solution out of this. We need a pan-national energy corridor, and you can include natural gas, you can include electricity, hydrogen, whatever the heck you want. Yep. We need a conduit uh, that currently exists from Alberta all the way to Ontario. Quebec doesn't want to be part of that, no problem. Go figure it out. But uh, as you're chasing windmills and uh, the world of magic and make-believe, good luck because there won't be the transfer payments going to that province either. So uh, we're almost out of time here. i got a minute or two left. How does the prime minister square this? Because his supporters must be saying, well, why are you fighting this, Justin Trudeau? This is what we want. We want these pipelines shut down. So how does he square this with people who, in the majority of his party, who don't want pipelines? Because, again, he seems to be now rejecting a stance that he once took and is now supporting this pipeline. Well, I think his supporters, his allies, uh, will have a lot of time to think about that uh, when they are taken by the scruff of the neck and thrown out of office. I'm familiar with that, by the way. In 2011, I saw that happen. The Liberals want to go down to ignominious defeat. Uh, keep on this idea that you can double down, triple down on raising the cost of energy, denying energy uh, at the time in which uh, the economy and Canadians expect uh, the government to be able to not only meet its obligations to get everything up and running again, but to pay off our, our debts, massive debts that we've incurred. So this is not the time to be horsing around and playing little trendy, cute little games with your green you know, fantasies. It's time to deal with reality and uh, leave the world of magic and make-believe for the textbooks and for fiction. Because frankly, we'll get there. But we'll get there constructively, in concert with technology, in concert with the laws of science, and above all, with the consent of Canadian people who are obviously being ignored in all this debate. And I'm sick of the narrative being only one-sided. The vast majority of Canadians uh, want a cleaner environment, but they sure as hell don't want it at the expense of their livelihood and the future of this country and their children. You bring up a very valid uh, statement. We'll get there. And many have said we will get there. Uh, technology, industry will get us there, just like they solved the issues of uh, the ozone layer, uh, clean air, uh, leaded gasoline, uh, you know, you yep. name it. These things have been going on since since I was a kid. You know, the uh, the ozone layer, we were supposed to die from that. Uh, the, the rainforest was depleting. I mean, these are all things that, you know, have been addressed, and I don't see this as being any other, uh, any different from any of those uh, situations. But it's going to be fascinating, and Dan, again, you were right, you were right, you were right, and uh, it's going to be fascinating to see how this uh, how we wiggle our way out of it.
wish I was wrong and looking forward to uh, that uh, very interested uh, uh, move by uh, politicians to tie themselves into pretzels. So let's see what that looks like in about a week or two from now. Dan McTagg, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP. Dan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Great to be here. Thanks again, Scott. Bye-bye. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. All right. You might remember, uh, obviously, this is going way back uh, in the early stages of uh, of this pandemic over a year ago uh, now. And, and, you know, if you want to know how we got to where we are now, you have to go back to the beginning of this pandemic. Uh, back in March and April, uh, when this whole thing first started way back when, uh, not this year, a year ago, back in 2020, um, uh, then governments, organizations were, uh, health organizations were trying to figure out exactly what COVID-19 was all about. Uh, how do you, uh, of course, then the fast tracking to, to find a vaccine and such, uh, all of that started, uh, obviously Canada, not in a situation where, uh, it could produce this sort of thing at that point. However, as we saw with the UK, uh, they quickly decided to put half the efforts towards reserving vaccine, purchasing vaccine, the other half of the effort to actually Actually producing something and moving forward. Uh, at that time, uh, the Prime Minister was busy doing the Cansino deal, uh, which was with a Chinese company and exchange information and such. And then, uh, I believe in March and April, the uh, the Chinese government literally pulled the rug out from under the Prime Minister and, and, and took the information and said, nope, that's it, we're not doing it. And that was it. We were we were out of the game for a production deal uh, at that point. And it stayed that way until about August, when that's when the prime minister started lining up and buying his portfolio that we hear so much uh, about. However, at that time, there were Canadian companies who were on the cusp of this uh, of this research and development who uh, could have uh, put us in the same position that the United Kingdom was in. But it didn't seem that uh, government was interested at the time and you may remember us introducing you to Brad Sorensen CEO of Providence Therapeutics uh, this was a, uh, a Calgary company that uh, again involved in this type of research and development let's bring Brad back into the picture here Brad thanks for your time I hope you're doing well I'm doing terrific how are you doing Good, thank you. So, uh, before we get to an update and where you are with your trials, there's some positive news there. Take us back to the beginning of this and set this story up and, and where Providence Therapeutics fits into all of this way back in March. Yeah, so back in, in March of 2020, uh, we approached the government with a, a proposal to uh, make a messenger RNA vaccine. Um, at that time, we were about one month behind Moderna. And we should also clarify, this is the newer technology vaccine like Pfizer and Moderna, not similar to the old style, which is which would be AstraZeneca and J&J. That's correct. Uh, we're the only messenger RNA company in Canada. We've been operating um, since 2015. Uh, we focus on oncology, cancer vaccines, um, but we're you know, we're very good at making messenger RNA vaccines. And like I said, we proposed to do this back in 2020. So what happened? Um, yeah, so we, we really didn't get any support uh, until the end of 2020. Um, we advanced our vaccine anyways. And, um, and the, the exact same vaccine that we, that we pitched to the government uh, over a year ago uh, has now finished its phase one trial. We, we published that data today. And it's it's fantastic. Um, 
we have we have a world class vaccine made right here in Canada. So bring us up to speed. What is where are you at with this testing, and what is the less the latest testing uh, provided you? Yeah, so we just finished our phase one trial, and um, and the data that we got from the volunteers of that trial uh, indicates that we've got a very safe vaccine. Um, the the uh, adverse events that are associated with dosing uh, is is significantly lower than uh, Pfizer and Moderna's. The um, the immunological activity, okay, so people talk about the the uh, antibodies and the neutralizing antibodies um, are are very strong. Uh, we're you know we're we're above our peers, and so we've got a very safe and we have a very effective vaccine that we're going to take into phase two now uh, in June. Now you said you were getting support at the end of 2020. Are you still? Uh, we we got a nominal amount of support uh, for our phase one trial. Uh, we received four point nine million dollars from the NRC uh, to support our phase one trial. It cost us significantly more than that, um, but we appreciate what we did get. Um, we're now in discussions with the NRC, uh, that's the National Research Council, to uh, to get some additional support for our phase two trial. Again, it's it's not it's not not even close to the amount that we're going to have to spend ourselves. Um, and, you know, we just were trying to get the, the Canadian government to, uh, to you know, acknowledge the fact that we've got a world-class mRNA vaccine here in Canada. Uh, and that was, quite frankly, the, all of the doses that, that went into this trial were made at Sunnybrook Research Institute in Toronto. When they said we can't make it in Canada, they were wrong. We can't. So what has the response been like then from the federal government for where you are now? It sounds like success. Let's keep moving. Um, basically, we're getting managed, you know. Um, what does that mean? It means that we, we get sort of the minimum level of support so that they can say that they're supporting us, but there's, there's no real impetus to actually to move it forward. Um, to, to put it in perspective, you know, we're, we're looks like we're about to get ten million dollars of support from the NRC for our phase two trial, but you know, our phase two trial is a head-to-head trial against Pfizer. Um, we need five hundred doses of Pfizer vaccine to run that trial, and we've been asking for over two months, and we can't get an answer as to whether they'll actually provide us the vaccine that we need to run the trial. Um, so obviously we need capacity that has been the discussion ever since this, this pandemic, uh, started, are they focused on other things? Why do you not think they are following through on this or are there other people there wanting the same thing? You know, I, I, I honestly, uh, I, I don't have a good answer for you. Um, there, we clearly have. You know, MR, we have mRNA technology in Canada. Uh, we clearly have a very, very good mRNA vaccine here in Canada. We've demonstrated we have the ability to make it in Canada. Um, why the federal government is is reluctant to engage? Um, that's that's a good question for the federal government. You know, um, I I hope that um, you know that it's. You know, when when we asked for the 500 doses, they said go ask Pfizer. Well, we asked Pfizer. Pfizer said no, not surprisingly. 
Um, yeah. And then we went back to the government and said, we need 500 doses to run this trial. And by the way, all these doses actually go into people's arms. Like, it's yeah. not like we're, we're you're vaccinating them. as you're experimenting. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, in fact, for every dose that we get, we're adding two of our own doses. So it's, it's, it's a multiplier. Um, now, you know, basically Pfizer's got, uh, Pfizer's got the Canadian government's on the uh, Canadian government on the ropes. Um, you know, if, 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 if Canada supports a company like Providence, does that mean, you know, there'll be an interruption in deliveries from Pfizer? I, you know, wow. I don't know what goes on, but what I do know is that, you know, it's a pretty simple ask for 500 doses and we can't get a commitment. So, uh, obviously, uh, it, it appeared that, uh, Canada has not done all, enough over the years to keep these countries, uh, to make an inducive, uh, a conducive environment to, to doing research and development here. Uh, is this the government trying, and I know I'm asking you questions you can't answer. Is this the government trying to appease Pfizer by keeping our own homegrown solutions out of, out of this? Because now, obviously, we're behind an eight ball. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, all I can say is that, is that, you know, we have, you know, and we've clearly demonstrated an ability to make it, and we've clearly demonstrated by our data that we released today that we make it, um, we make it really well. So, and, what about the facility in Montreal? Are they already? You know, can the government say, "Well, we don't need that. We already got this going on." And then there was the other deal that they signed with Novavax out of the U.S., which again isn't Canadian, but. Um, what are your thoughts on those? Is that in, is that, uh, impeding your ability to move forward? Well, so we, we approached the government in November of last year to, to utilize that facility in Montreal to make the messenger RNA vaccines here in Canada. And we were told no. Uh, and then, you know, a couple of weeks later, we hear the announcement that they've dedicated that facility to Novavax. So, you know, I, they 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 picked you know they picked a recombinant protein vaccine over an mRNA vaccine. Um, yeah, that is the that is the other technology. That's not the newer technology that the Pfizer and Moderna and you guys are, are talking about. Right. So you know, it's again, you know, what went into making those decisions. Um, you know, we, we've they they say that they're listening to the vaccine task force. Uh, I mean, we've had folks resign from that task force because of lack of transparency and, and perceived conflicts. I know Novavax uses a JSK uh, adjuvant. Um, you know, two members of the task force were former JSK, you know, folks. Um, you know, the first deal that they signed was a JSK Sanofi deal that ultimately never even got out of the gates. Uh, you know, they couldn't they couldn't get it done. Um, why when everybody in the entire world knows messenger RNA is working and we have a Canadian company that's demonstrated they have the capacity and the expertise to make a messenger RNA vaccine. We're not getting support. It's it's a mystery. It it, it certainly is, Brad. And you know, like something just doesn't seem right here. I remember at the very beginning of all of this, 
so let's go back to 2020 and the prime minister and various people within uh, his circle were saying uh, we can't make this we can't make this we don't have the capacity to make it but then I- i'm thinking that was coming from the pfizer standpoint that they don't have any facilities here uh, that they can make it um, you know and, and that was sort of uh, the message we were hearing and then there was a, a Canadian who was uh, working and his name escapes me now that uh, was working in the UK uh, with the uh, Oxford uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine and he said that just simply isn't true uh, that the UK was where Canada was and they quickly ramped up and we know where they are now uh, and then all of a sudden the story started changing uh, from the prime minister's office. And then all of a sudden the Novavax deal was done and what have you. So we went from not being able to do it to all of a sudden doing it with older technology and pushing it farther uh, down the road. And I remember well, speaking to you at that time. Um, do you think that the, 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 the feds aren't happy that uh, like that person in the UK, that companies like yours spoke up and said, no, we can do this here. What are you saying? Well, I'm I'm not going away. Uh, you know, I'm a squeaky wheel, and and you know, I'm sure that I'm sure that there's a lot of people in government that are frustrated and wish I would just drop off the earth. But you know, we've got a technology that's going to save lives, and I've got a moral obligation to to do what I can, um, and we're going to keep doing that. The um, you know, the reality is is they have the resources to support it. They're just choosing not to. I mean. They just, you know, they just together with Ontario committed $400 million to Sanofi, a French company, so that they could retrofit an aging technology and and make influenza vaccines in Ontario. And they champion this as, as, as you know, the return of biomanufacturing in, in Canada. Well, with $400 million, I could have had doses for every Canadian ready to go in, in six months. Um, so it's, you know, they, they bet on decades old technology for influenza in the middle of a COVID pandemic. Uh, Do you, obviously, uh, you know, the, the federal government isn't paying attention to what you're doing or choosing not to, uh, to address it. What about other support within Canada? I mean, is, is this making any noise across the country? Uh, it is, um, it's, we're, you know, like I said, we're, we keep trying with the provinces as, as well as the federal government. Um, you know, we do have one advocate. I won't say we're getting completely ignored. Uh, province of Manitoba has done a fantastic job and, um, and, you know, we're, we're very pleased with, with the relationship that's going on there. Their primary focus has been, how quickly can we get vaccines made, made in Canada, and available for um, and available for Canadians? So that's that's their priority, um, and you know, hopefully that you know that'll leak through to other other governments in Canada as well. So, what do you need from the federal government now? Uh, it would be great if if they would uh, make a commitment to ramp up production. I mean, even if they don't need our doses, ramp up production so that we can supply those doses throughout the world. Um, and, um, you know, ideally, you know, talk to us about purchasing vaccines Buy Canadian for heaven's sakes, instead of always buying off outside of Canada. 
are you getting um, are you getting interest for this outside of this country? Is this oh, moving? Plenty. Is this going to move out of Canada? This company? We're, we're getting a huge amount of interest outside of Canada, um, and um, you know uh, we've we've got the ability to make 200 million doses a year uh, out of our facilities in Canada. We're going to keep doing that in the middle of a pandemic. I mean, like I said, we've got a moral obligation to make as much vaccine as we can. Um, but, you know, once we get through the crisis, the question is, is are we going to leave this production in Canada or are we going to move it out? Um, and if we don't get any support and from from the government here, um, it's, it's a pretty tough business decision to stay where you're not wanted. So could this be, and this is, you know, strictly my hypothetical scenario, uh, if you want, if I'm Mr. Pfizer or Mr. Moderna, if you want all of these uh, uh, doses coming in now to save your rear end between May and September, uh, you're doing a deal with us, you're not supporting a competitor. Is that a, is that, is that a viable theory? Um. You know, all, all I can say is that we've got something that's real. We need 500 doses of the of the millions of doses that are being purchased. We need 500 doses. Can you purchase those in any way, or is that impossible? No, we, we we're not allowed to. Yeah, uh, yeah. The only the only person that can import vaccines in Canada is the Canadian government. So uh, when do you think you will hear for them, from them in regard to giving you the 500 doses of Pfizer to do the testing? We, we told them we have to know by Friday. We're submitting our proposal to the Health Canada. We have to have that confirmation by Friday. And if you don't, what happens? Uh, then we'll have to look uh, at alternatives. So in other words, funding from other countries. Yeah, I mean, we, 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 we've got backup plans for our, our late-stage trials uh, with the World Health Organization and, and other countries. Uh, it would be a real shame if we have to go that route. I remember you saying before uh, that you were doing uh, working on deals with other provinces, Manitoba specifically at the time. Where is that, uh, and are there other provinces involved? What happened we there? Have, we have a fantastic relationship with uh, the Manitoba government. Uh, we have not signed the definitive agreement, and, and simply the reason we haven't signed the definitive agreement is because when we do, they need to pay us $7.2 million, mm-hmm. and under no circumstance will I ever put Manitoba in a position where they're going to be uh, out without getting real value for their investment. And, um, you know, I, I'm not going to bite the hand that, uh, you know, the only the only government in Canada that actually stepped up to the plate Um you know, I'm going to make sure that if if we do consummate that deal, that it's going to it's going to bring real value for for folks in Manitoba. Do you expect to hear from the feds by Friday? Do you expect any movement on this, or have they left you to your own? Uh, well, we've communicated very clearly. Um, we'll see what they do. All right, Brad Sorensen with us, CEO of Providence Therapeutics, uh, are in the uh, business of producing mRNA uh, products and, of course, can be uh, producing Canadian vaccines right here in Canada. Uh, However, uh, for some reason, are just not getting the federal support. Uh, We'll keep looking at this. Brad, thanks for the time. Good luck. Okay, cheers. Knowing the writing was on the wall, Liz Cheney offered parting words to her party on Tuesday night. Remaining silent 
and ignoring the lie emboldens the liar. By Wednesday morning, one of the most conservative members within the Republican Party was pushed out via voice vote. The party's leader for weeks saying she doesn't fit with the Republican messaging. She voted for impeachment and was critical of Trump's involvement in the Capitol riots. But that messaging is also linked to an election lie that was and still is being pushed by Donald Trump. And removing her now aligns the GOP more with Trump's bogus views of reality. It's a move to try and regain power in the 2022 midterms, but Trump's base hasn't grown in the last four years, so it's a gamble. Cheney's replacement is much more moderate and a vocal backer of the former president. Reggie Chikini, Global News, Washington. Let's bring in Brian J. Karam, political analyst with CNN, executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers and White House reporter for Playboy, and is with us now. Brian, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well. How about yourself? I'm doing great, thanks. You know, Brian, I know you're one of the, the few that gets the chance to sit in the White House press room and digest what's going on down the, uh, down there. What's it like to sit in with this administration compared to the past administration? Uh, this administration is more in line with previous administrations, which doesn't mean, you know, I like them any better. I, I view all of politicians the same way a dog looks at a fire hydrant. But... Um, <laughs> But at least I haven't had any death threats since uh, the, the inauguration. And for that, I'm immensely grateful. Um, it has been a little bit more professional, and that is much appreciated. I can imagine what that uh, the difference is. All right. Does this prove, with the ousting of Liz Cheney, uh, does this prove how much control Donald Trump still has over the Republican Party? Absolutely. And it proves that... Um, those who want to follow, look, I don't believe that Donald Trump for a minute is going to run for re-election in 2024. I think that he's setting this up to be his party, and he's got a certain number of followers that is very enticing to uh, politicians, up-and-coming politicians in, in what's left of the Republican fascist party, and they want to embrace those numbers. To do that, they embrace Donald Trump. To do that, they embrace the big lie. To do that, they have taken themselves out of the context of uh, American patriotism and inserted themselves uh, in the same column as Benedict Arnold. So why don't you think Donald Trump's going to run for president again? I mean, is he going to have this much control and not take the top job? Will his ego allow that? I don't think he cares about the top job. He only cared about making money the first time around, and I think uh, it's a lot less hassle for him to manipulate it now and be a kingmaker. Also, I don't know about his health. Um, I, I think there are too many question marks to put him decidedly in the column of I'm going to run again in 2024, although it's best to prepare for, if you're a Democrat, I think it's best to prepare for the, for the uh, eventuality that he will run, but I'm just telling you I, from my personal knowledge of trump i would i would be really uh, hesitant to believe that he actually will i think he'd much rather bilk the supporters for money um turn over control to someone that he can control and be the uh player behind the scenes without having to face the daily pressure of being president uh if in if by chance he did decide to run uh can the republicans win another u.s election with donald trump at the helm or has America had enough? <laughs> well, I would have thought he wouldn't have won the first time around, so you really don't want to ask me that question. Hmm. <laughs> I, uh, I, but I suspect that you know he uh, his popularity is waning. I don't think that it's going to be um, 
I, I see no reason for it to increase because he's done nothing to try and entice those who don't side with him. Uh, he's only pitched his tent with those who, who do love him. And that's a, you know, that's a small number of extremely pale white people. Does Donald Trump help the Republican Party or is he just setting it back long term? Donald Trump is the Republican Party. That's the bottom line. And uh, so that's why you have 100 Republicans threatening to leave the Republican Party to form a third party, because they believe that Donald Trump's Republican Party has abandoned some of the core principles of American democracy. And on that, they are correct. So um, but to say that, you know, the, the simple fact of the matter is today he is the Republican Party. Uh, talk about Liz Cheney. She is out and the influence she did have uh, prior to Trump. Um, Liz Cheney, look, you, there's a lot that I don't agree that Liz Cheney has done, but she absolutely is correct in not embracing the big lie and saying that. And that is and that is why they want her out. Right, Brian, is that because exactly. Donald Trump is still trying to sell that this whole election was a lie and, and fixed and she refused to to sell that mantra. She refuses to, to buy into it. Now, you may disagree with many of the things that Liz Cheney has said and done, and I do, but her adherence to facts uh, makes her an American patriot in my book, and uh, the rest of the Republican Party, a bunch of insurrectionists and, uh, you know, uh, Banana Republic supporters. Are you surprised she couldn't hold the party together? No, because Donald Trump, she doesn't have the money or the votes that Donald Trump has. And for those that have sold their soul to that concept, Donald Trump is, you know, the only savior that you can have. He's got, you know, 70 million votes, uh, as he said, more than any other ex-president has gotten uh, for re-election in the past election. Of course, that just makes him the biggest loser ever. But, you know, congratulations. Out of all the losers in history, you come in first. You're the biggest hmm. loser. So um, Liz, but, no, sorry, go ahead, go ahead. But so nonetheless, Liz Cheney can't compete with that. If she could, they would all follow Liz Cheney. Uh, Liz Cheney said she is not going to. Uh, she is not going to way, uh, going away. She is going to continue to to say what she has to say. Uh, apparently, she has a plan. Um, where do you see that going? Where do you see her and, and what her role will be moving forward? Well, she's going to be the irritant, isn't she? And she may be the impetus for. Um, uh, putting together a third party, or she may be the savior of the uh, the grand old party, but the, certainly the GOP is not the party of Lincoln or Teddy Roosevelt, who, by the way, was a progressive. Um, they're not even the party of Eisenhower. They're not the party of Reagan. Uh, and he was, you know, off into the wild blue yonder with his nonsense. But uh, this is a party of fascists, narcissists, and greedmongers. Is the party in shambles? Are they going to have a hard time uniting whoever they decide to make leader? Well, yeah, I think that's uh, evident. Um, but I don't know what that means. Um, I, I don't know because of the fact that um, 
who Donald Does Trump it mean is. that the Democrats are going to win the next couple of elections till they figure it out? Uh, that, there's no guarantee of that because, you know, uh, one is a party of no heart and one is a party of no head. Yeah. And while the Republicans have lowered the bar considerably, Democrats always find a way to stumble over it, um, you know, or under it or not meet it. Uh, so we'll see. I mean, redistricting in the 2020 census has given some weight to the red states. Gerrymandering could... Uh, create an environment in which the minority rules in this country, and that would be devastating. So there are a lot of unanswered questions going into the midterm elections in 2022. Uh, in addition, in some of the red states, uh, Republicans have been very successful in, um, you know, uh, voter restrictions and uh, restricting voters' rights. So all of those are open-ended questions that have to be resolved prior to the 2022 election. There's no guarantee that the Democrats have, uh, you know, or a shoe in in, the, in 2022 or 2024. A lot of water has to go under the bridge before then. How do Republicans feel about Liz Cheney, traditional Republicans, feel about Liz Cheney uh, being ousted? Does she have any support within the party? Yeah, like I said, there are 100 Republicans who are... Um, ready, willing, and able to form a third party because uh, the Republican Party will not acknowledge that Donald Trump lost the election. Mind you, we are, what, more than 100 days into the new administration and the inability to recognize reality, and that is dangerous. It's not just dangerous for our country, it's dangerous for the world. If If you cannot be mindful of reality, if you want to create reality inside your own head, uh, you've got a problem with 7 billion other people on the planet and the universe as a whole. The universe doesn't care whether you want to acknowledge facts or not. Facts are facts. And uh, uh, that's it's, it, it's detrimental to democracy. Why is it important for the Republican Party to sell the mantra that the last election was a fake and, and, and was fixed? Why not just concentrate on what the next message is and, and beating the Democrats? Because Donald Trump can't give up the, the fact that he lost. And he controls a great number of voters and a great deal of money. And as long as he controls the voters and the money, they're going to follow the moron. And the moron can't admit that he lost. And he's destroying the Republican Party and attempting to destroy the American Democratic uh, experiment in the process. He is an insurrectionist. He is a, a, a traitor to this country. He needs to be prosecuted. Uh, Liz Cheney said she was going to make sure or try to make sure that he never becomes president again. How does that resonate? What does that mean? Well, that means she'll probably actively uh, work with uh, Republicans who want to run against him. It could mean that she will run against him. It could mean that she's going to raise money for um, uh, people who uh, oppose in primaries, other members of the GOP who oppose sitting members of the GOP who have backed the big lie, it's, it's a, it could mean something in court. It means that uh, from what I've uh, uh, been able to determine in talking with her office is that she is ready, willing, and uh, enabled to do whatever she needs to do to make sure that Donald Trump isn't the next president. And that's a wide variety of things that and I've named a bunch, and there are probably a few more I don't know about. Uh, many were talking uh, that come uh, post-election, after the election, after the inauguration, that Donald Trump would ha- would be would be flooded with legal issues and and in all sorts of inquiry that way. Has that happened, or is he yeah, under investigation? I mean, Where has all that gone? 
he is he is under investigation. Giuliani had his apartment raided by the FBI. Mm. Um, Michael Cohen, his former fixer, believes that within six months Donald Trump will be facing some kind of charges somewhere. So that's also another reason why I'm not sure that he's a shoe in for a you know to be renominated in 2024. And that's the thing the the Republicans who back him are gambling on the fact that he'll he'll be around that long. It's a bad gamble. If I were a Vegas odds aren't real good on that. And evidently, a lot of these people in the Republican Party have never gone to a casino because, you know, the odds are always with a house, not with a gambler. And Donald Trump is the con man gambler. And I wouldn't bet on him. Where are the young Republicans uh, that are in this party that aspire for this top job? Are are they just going to sit back and let Donald Trump run the party or... Is there somebody, is there another great candidate for the Republicans somewhere? No, I, that's a good question. I mean, you would think that uh, Liz Cheney might be, or you, you might think that there are others that are. But um, Donald Trump controls the, the, the media and the message, and it's not going to, they're not going to get out there. It's going to be tough for them to get out from under the all-encompassing, uh, you know, storm that is Donald Trump. He's a media storm. He gathers when he shows up, he gets press because he's so outrageous and so outlandish, and he knows it, and he loves it, and people listen to it. So he draws a lot of oxygen out of the room, and it's hard for anybody else to get traction when, when you've got that guy out there you know, sucking up all the air. We we certainly remember when he was president and, you know, the, the hourly tweets and, and what have you. I remember waking up and looking at my phone and like one of the first tweets you would see would be from Donald Trump. Uh, is he still commanding that much attention in America? Clearly, he is with the base of the party. But is he in the United States? Well, no, because he's been banned from Twitter and Facebook. So we're not subjected to him on a daily or hourly basis. And I, for one, am very thankful the ability to sleep through the night without the alarm on my phone going off telling me that <laughs> the president of my country has done something so, you know, erstwhile stupid that it makes me cringe. So, you know, I, I'm very happy that he's, you know, that he's not on those social platforms. But he continues to send out two or three press releases a day saying exactly what he would say in his tweets. And mind you, they're not much longer than tweets. And uh, luckily, I have the ability not to reproduce that uh, mosh of, of misinformation and I can ignore a lot of it so but th- at the same time you're correct his base uh, still listens to him his base loves him it may be a dwindling base but it is a very outspoken very uh, energetic base and that and thus is the, is the problem Brian J. Karam has been with us, political analyst with CNN, executive editor of Sentinel Newspapers, and White House reporter for Playboy. Brian, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. You too, my brother. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.